0: And welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Um, And for just to let you guys know, if you could send me emails, that is really the easiest way for me to get your questions. And most of you do do that, and I appreciate it, but I'm just throwing it out there that the easiest, fastest, and most certain way to get your questions to me is by email to askrishshelton at gmail.com. And that email address is in the description section of every Q&A video I do. All right. Uh, so hope you guys enjoyed the podcast yesterday with John Atak about brainwashing. I have seen so much nonsense in academia and in, my, in the media about the subject of thought reform, mind control, brainwashing. You know, what is this all about? What are we really talking about when we use these terms? You know, I don't really use brainwashing very often as a term because it is kind of controversial. It is kind of all over the place in people's minds. But, you know, not too many people readily understand the term thought reform. Uh, and mind control sounds like some 1950s sci-fi thing. You know, people are like, well, it's not necessarily like that. It's it's very, very different. And thought reform is really certainly the best term to use. Um, Anyway, we go into, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff uh, in the podcast, so I hope you guys will check it out so we can kind of finally put to rest any questions on this topic. What is it? What is it not? And um, also, you know, clear up some misconceptions out there that people have about it. And we also get into the history of it and stuff like that and get into, of course how Scientology applies that as a case study, as an example of how this is used, but it's used by governments all over the world, even the United States, much to my shame and chagrin. Um, We really have no business treating people that way, and yet we do, and I'm not okay with that, and neither should you be, and after you watch that podcast or listen to it, I think you'll understand even more why we really should not be okay with that stuff. So that is that. Uh, now on the on the flip side, uh, this is at Critical Q&A episode number 399, which means next week is going to be number 400. Yay! So I'm up for suggestions or uh, requests from you guys as to what it is you'd like to see us do. I'm planning on doing a live stream, and maybe I'll have uh, my wife here to help with that. Um, next weekend, but I'm kind of curious what you know, is that what you guys would like to see? Would you like to see something else in terms of me answering your questions? It's a pretty straightforward format, but I am always down for suggestions. So let me know your ideas. Um, I also needed to throw out, uh, I often do this at the end of the show, but I just wanted to cram this in at the beginning that this fan, this show and this channel is entirely fan funded by you guys. You're the ones who make this happen. My Patreon supporters, the people who watch on YouTube and click on the ads and all of that revenue, and the individual support that I get uh, when you send me donations through PayPal or um, uh, uh, Venmo, and I have links to all of those things in the description section to this and, again, every one of my videos. So feel free to support the channel. Um, This is the—you guys are really the only thing keeping this going, and I really could use the help. And finally, I wanted to say, um, because I need to promote this a lot more, and this is the venue to do it, that if you are someone who needs consultation on the subject of cults, coercive control, brainwashing, you know, all that stuff, how to deal with it, how to, you know, how to deal with it, either having come out of a coercive controlling situation like a cult or a domestic partnership or something, if you're having struggles or you're having some issues with that, maybe I can help. Not from a therapeutic point of view. I am not a psychologist or therapist, but I do have more than a little bit of experience with this topic, and I am educated on the subject of coercive control. And I'm trying to use that degree and use that knowledge to help people like you guys. So you can contact me for professional consultation on that again, through my email, uh, and my website, uh, mncriticalthinking.com. So that all being said, let's get on with your questions. Natasha Evelyn, could you tell something more about these security checks? Are the questions always and for everyone the same? What questions would come for a returnee? Can I find the list of these questions on the internet? All right. Thank you, Natasha. And um, okay, so yes, let's talk about security checks. I love talking about this stuff and giving you guys more data. And in fact, I pulled up some stuff I think you might be interested in today on this. First off, you ask Are the questions always the same for everybody? Yes. A security check is done one of two ways. There's either a prepared list of security check questions, and these are standardized forms that are used. And this is all in the Church of Scientology, of course. We're talking Scientology here. Um, and security checks or confessionals in Scientology are the uh, type of auditing, you using the e-meter, to extract information from people and, and write it down and keep it in files. And it's all supposedly confidential, and of course, none of it is. So in Scientology, security checks are very specific. There's a procedure to it. There's a way you do it. And these forms, these pre-made forms, are used to cover different subjects or different areas, and we'll actually go over a couple of those. However, there are also tailor-made security checks where the case supervisor or the person who's overseeing the auditing can write down questions tailored to the individual that they're going to be doing a security check on. If there's a specific investigation being done or it's suspected that the person is guilty of... You know these overt's, these crimes or sins, uh, in a specific area, and there is no prepared form for that, or they don't want to do the whole form. Then they can do a tailor-made security check. But once the rule is whether you're using a pre-printed form and you can add questions to it, so you can tailor-make some questions on a prepaid, on a prepared form, or you can just do the whole thing from scratch and prepare it yourself. Either way once the security check is approved to be done and it started you can must not ever remove any questions from it you've got to do the whole thing once you get going on it there's no ending off in the middle and saying okay good enough we're all finished now so that's kind of the rule for it now as far as what kind of questions would come up for a returnee here you're looking for you're asking about um a very specific um security check that would be done for somebody who is claiming to be a past life Scientologist. And more specifically, they're only going to be really security checked or checked over on this if they are claiming a clear or OT status. And then they're going to have some sharp and pointed questions for them. But I don't have access to those security forms because they're confidential. They're part of the clear certainty rundown and they're part of the OT materials. And I just didn't look them up or or go hunting for them because I don't think I have them in my files. Um, and that's, so I'm sorry, I can't tell you what kind of questions are asked of a returnee, but clearly the questions are going to be along the line of, are you faking it? Are you lying? Is this, you know, did you make all this up for status? Are you pursuing clear because you're looking for status? Are you trying to be, you know, are you claiming to be a past life OT because you're, you know, status, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different ways you can, you know, kind of punch that subject up and see if somebody's uh, lying or trying to deceitfully make their way onto Clear and OT. Um, As far as, uh, you know, can I find these, a list of these questions on the internet? I mean, maybe you can go looking. I just, just, it's the clear certainty rundown or the OT levels, and you can look for security checks about those. Um, As far as other security checks, though, they are all over the internet. And I pulled some down today because I thought you might, you all might like and appreciate some of the questions on some of these forms. I thought I'd go over this with you. Um, And there are uh, some wild ones. Now, there's a number of different forms out there that are security check forms, but the big granddaddy of them all, one of the very earliest ones, was called the Johannesburg security check because it was written in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it is an extensive security check. It's also the very first... One, I believe, that Hubbard actually sat and wrote. And here are some of the questions on it. This is, and there are, by the way, on this particular form, there are uh 90 questions. 94. 94 questions on this Johannesburg security check. And like I said, once you start on it, you're not done until you get through all the questions. And getting through all the questions, just as a quick reminder for everybody, when you're doing a security check, is you have to ask the question on the e-meter. The auditor, the security checker, asks the question, but he doesn't care what the person says. He's watching the e-meter. And the e-meter, the needle on the dial, has to do this kind of a floating needle response to the question. So... You're not done with the question until the needle is doing this, right? And if they ask the question and the needle responds to the question, you're going to have to answer it. You're going to have to come up with something. And the whole point of a security check and the whole reason the auditor is there is to get these questions to read, to respond, right? And, and that's, the, that's what it looks like on a needle. If you're looking at the meter from your perspective, the needle falls from the left to the right? and that's a fall and that's the reaction that they're looking for. Uh, so what are some of the questions on the Johannesburg sec check? Well, here are some of the first I'm not going to go through all 94 questions, but here are some of them. Have you ever lived or worked under an assumed name? Have you given me your right name? Are you here for a different purpose than you say? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever forged someone else's signature? Have you ever blackmailed anybody? Have you ever been blackmailed? Have you ever smuggled anything? Have you ever been in prison? Have you ever indulged in drunkenness? Have you ever done any reckless driving? Have you ever burglarized any place? Have you ever embezzled money? Have you ever assaulted anyone? Have you ever been in jail? Have you ever been told lies in court? Oh, sorry. Have you ever told lies in court? Have you ever had anything to do with pornography? Have you ever committed arson? Those are just the first 18 questions or first uh, 10 or 11 questions on this form. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Have you ever been in illegal possession of firearms? Have you ever had anything to do with communism or been a communist? Have you ever been a newspaper reporter? Have you ever had intercourse while under the influence of drugs? There's all kinds of questions on here, all kinds. Uh, and I'm just randomly kind of going through the Joburg now, right? That's what they call it, the Joburg, the Johannesburg Sec Check. Uh, have you ever, uh, have you committed any overts against spirits? Here's an interesting question how could you help god or infinity that's a security check question and i'll leave it to you to figure out how it's it's wild stuff okay now moving on here is a confession that a confessional form that i received when i was in scientology as a staff member it's the general staff confessional list and this is a anyone um Yeah, obviously, this is just for general staff members. And of course, that would mean Sea Org members, too. You could get a sec check like this as a Sea Org member to clean you up on all your wrongdoing as 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 a Scientology staff member. So what kind of questions do we have here? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at the first 10. Have you ever stolen anything from a Scientology organization? Are you here only to get free processing? Do you intend to leave this organization once trained? Have you audited outside PCs for money while a member of this org? That is a rule that they have, is if you're a staff member in a Scientology church, you cannot be auditing people outside the org uh, and making money on that, because that would be ripping off the org, see? Have you ever fed an org PC to an outside auditor? Sometimes there's commissions and stuff for that, right? Not okay. Have you ever broken a contract with an org? Have you ever shifted the blame to an innocent staff member? As a staff member, have you failed to keep the org schedule? Have you offered or delivered free services? Have you accepted services from an organization without being invoiced? Right, free service, there's policy on that, no free services. And this general staff confessional goes on and on and on here, like, a, like the last one, 78 questions in total. And, again, every single one of them has to be FN. Not just, not, not just cleaned up and not having any reaction, has to have that floating needle. Okay. And let's do one more just to give you guys some other examples of this. Uh, there's an auditor security check or confessional form for auditors. There's, let's see here, going on down the line. Oh, my goodness. And this auditor one, I'm up to question 160, 80, 200 questions on the auditor security check. There is a supervisor confessional list for course supervisors, people who, like me, who used to run classrooms in Scientology. And that one goes on and on for 73 questions. There's a student confessional list. Um, and this is for students, uh, of Scientology, right? Anybody who's done services or courses, there's a security check that they could do on you to check you up or clean you out, uh, of your sins as a student. Um, what kind of questions would they ask you? Well, let's take a look. Has here's question number one. Has anyone given or loaned you money to help cover your tuition or expenses while on this course? If so, have you promised them something in return for this? If so, what exactly have you committed yourself to? If so, do you intend to make good this obligation? That's all just question one. Uh, Are you coming on this course in order to get away from someone or something? Do you have any goal for being on this course, which, if achieved, would result in harm to another person, his possessions, or his reputation? Those are just the first three questions of the uh, student confessional and this could go this one goes on for my goodness 151 questions oh here's one for the salespeople this is a confessional for use in cleaning up overts and withholds on registrars and sales personnel so if you're a salesperson in Scientology you might get this sometime just to clean you up right specialize just for them Uh, Here's some of the first questions. Have you ever stolen money? Have you ever sold anything that belonged to someone else? Have you ever forced another into buying something he didn't want? Have you ever used threats as a means of obtaining money? Have you ever bribed someone to obtain money? Have you ever accepted a bribe? Have you ever blackmailed anybody? Have you ever forged a signature check or document? Now, it's interesting. These are the first eight questions on the form. And here's the little, the little mind trickery of this is you're security checked as though all these things are awful and horrible and you must be cleaned up on them. And they are. And then you're put right back into a culture that demands you actually do these things in order to get your stats up and do your job and stay out of trouble. That's the problem. That's the I talk about double binds a lot where you're sort of hemmed in by contradictory or conflicting rules or ideas. And this is one of the ways that these double binds manifest in Scientology is you are cleaned up of all your wrongdoing. And then you're thrown right back into the fire pit where you have to go back and are sort of forced into. Uh, doing it all over again. And it doesn't make it okay. I'm not saying that that gives anybody who's doing these things a pass just because they're in a nasty environment that forces it on them. I'm saying that the environment and the pressure of it and the pressure cooker environment uh, makes people do desperate things. And uh, and then they claim the moral high ground of, oh, well, we're going to get you cleaned up of all that. But they never give the money back, ever They never make any restitution for the people who are doing these things. If a salesperson goes into a security check and answers the question, have you ever stolen money? It's not like they go and give the money back to the person he stole it from. You see? So it's all just another layer of control disguised as help. And that's the real nasty part of this, is it looks like this? these are the kind of questions where you would clean somebody up of this stuff, get all their stuff off their chest. Oh, I feel so much more better. I feel so relieved that I told you all that stuff. I confessed all my sins. You know, great. If they just left it there, then maybe there'd be some progress. But that's not how that environment works. And that's why I say, here you have something that on the surface might look like it's a, it's a good thing. But actually, in that environment, it's not. And I hope that's um, I hope that's clear. So anyway, I just thought you guys might appreciate a little uh, specific information that I've all because I've been talking about security checks for years, and very rarely have I gone and actually pulled the actual questions. So there's some samples for you. There you go, Sharon Dobson. You've discussed how someone can be declared a suppressive person. Since no Scientologist is to interact with a declared SP. How are Scientologists informed when someone is declared? Is there an email, news article, etc.? If a Scientologist doesn't know the SP, how can they avoid them? Is there a master list? All right, Sharon, thanks for asking about this. And the way it used to work uh, years and years ago was there every single Scientology organization or church, everyone has a staff notice board or a, and a public notice board. They have a, a literally a bulletin board where they would post, post the declare orders on people. And they would usually have them on a clipboard or a little clippy or something. and they would put them up there and people could go and see who had been declared all over the world. And it wasn't like there were lots and lots of these things. There were just a few and they'd be posted for about a month or so. and then they'd go into a file in the uh, Division one, uh, Department three, the ethics department. Of the church, and you could always go there, and and there'd be files of these SP declares, and they were printed on goldenrod-colored paper, yellow, basically a, a kind of a darker, deep yellow uh, color, and this is the official color for the ethics and Division One of the Scientology uh, organization. So everything coming out of uh, Division One is on this goldenrod paper, including these declare orders and other ethics orders. So you could recognize it from across the room. It's like, oh, there's some goldenrod, right? And you'd go over there and take a look at it and it'd be hanging on the bulletin board. And they were quite interesting. I remember as a public Scientologist going and seeing them and I'd see declare orders from some guy in Germany or somebody in France or somebody in the US or, you know, just some Joe Schmo I'd never met or had anything to do with. Sometimes I might've heard their name or heard of them and it'd be like, oh my gosh, they got declared. And You'd read through it, and the whole point of the SP declare was to character assassinate the person to to the rest of Scientology and make it that that person was justifiably kicked out. That was their fault that they were kicked out. It was never the church's fault. It was always stuff they were doing that caused the church to have to go out of its way to try to help the person, and they didn't get any help. They wouldn't respond to help. That was always part of the SP declare is this person has been offered, you know, or given or worked with or despite, you know, intervention from the ethics officers. Uh, Joe Schmo refused any help and refused any contact and, you know, continued to demand, you know, whatever it was they were demanding or continued to do whatever flagrant violation of Scientology policy They were engaging in, whether it was going off and getting auditing from somebody they weren't supposed to, or they were disagreeing too much, or they were uh, committing, you know, stealing from the organization, or they were lying or involved in extramarital affairs, or whatever the nasty that they were involved in, it would be laid out in detail in the declare order. And so you would come away reading this thinking, holy shit, that's a bad dude. I'm glad we got rid of him. So glad they spotted that and cleaned that up. And that was the intended result of reading one of these character assassination goldenrod sheets. So that's how they used to do it. But here's what happened. With the birth of the Internet, these SP declares could be broadly disseminated online. People could see them. People who had nothing to do with Scientology could see them and go, wait a second. That's crazy. What are you talking about? This is there's invasion of privacy. There is li- there's libel and or slander going on here. This is not okay. This is really wrong of any group to be doing up to people. And this had a very negative PR ramification and it endangered the church because you know, libel and slander are real crimes and if Scientology's uh, you know, exposed in this way, then what they do is pull in their flippers and stop doing it and pretend they never did it. And that's one of the things that's happened here, where they stopped posting the declare orders on the notice boards, or they stopped posting all of them on the notice boards, and instead you had to go to HCO, go to the ethics department to find them and look them up. And you know, and that's not something people would think to go do or or think about very much. And so. The Department 3 guys, the ethics guys, would receive these declare orders or they would receive a list, a master list, from the international justice chief of all the declared SPs ever. And they do keep up a list of this. And that way they can, you know, look people up and check and see if somebody's declared or not. Um, So that's how it used to be done. Now, in terms of how they notify people now, for the most part, it's done through the rumor line. And what you're told is that uh, either through Facebook or through the local ethics officer, or somebody maybe calls you up or something if they see or hear that you are somehow connected, like if somebody was connected to me, if a Scientologist friended me on Facebook, let's say, and the church was monitoring their Facebook friends, which they do, they call them the, we we call them the Facebook police. They're out there. There are Scientologists who go through the friend lists of other Scientologists to see who they're connected to. And if they're connected to one of the bad guys like me, Mike Rinder, whoever, they get a phone call or they get a message. Hey, I just want to let you know that person's not in good standing with the church and you should not be connected with them. Just saying. And that's the key phrasing now is they are not in good standing. And so you don't even have to be declared officially a suppressive person or labeled that in order for Scientologists to get the message, oh, oh, I'm supposed to stay away from that person now. Defriend, block, et cetera, right? So that's kind of how it's done now is through this whole rumor mill. And, of course, that violates one of the most basic principles of Scientology, which is if it isn't written, it isn't true. Hubbard, Hubbard laid that down to avoid people having these kind of rumor line nonsensical things going on with orders and directives and also with these SP declares. But you know, Hubbard, just like everybody else, was the biggest hypocrite in, you know in Scientology, was the biggest hypocrite ever. And so he would violate this rule all the time. But it is still an in writing order in Scientology that if it isn't written, it isn't true. And you're not supposed to be able to get in trouble for stuff that's not written down. You're, if you're breaking rules that nobody's written down anywhere, you're not supposed to be getting in trouble. If somebody's issued you an order and you haven't done it, and it was just a verbal order, you're supposed to be in the clear. Like uh, you didn't put it in writing, so what? You know, screw you, right? So that is kind of one of the most fundamental things that was violated, and a lot of Scientologists were like, "Wait a second, what the hell's going on here?" And that has opened some people's eyes all by itself. is that kind of contradictory, you know, hypocrisy. But that's how Scientology operates now is it's all rumor line and rumor mill and, and Facebook police. And that, of course, um, if you think that through a little bit, as to, like, how would it be if your where you work operated that way? And if it does operate that way, how does it feel? Feels pretty dangerous, doesn't it? Because you never know when you're going to get hit or from what end or for what reason. Anybody, you are vulnerable to anything from any direction if things can't be standardized and written down and followed. And this is why policy and guidelines and rules are so important. So, uh, you know, that you, you end up creating an environment of uncertainty and danger and threat. And that's exactly what Scientology has done. And Miscavige has found it to be actually better for him to run things this way because it puts everybody on eggshells all the time as to whether they're in trouble or not. So another aspect of, you know, Scientology's coercive control environment is that, that milieu control, that environmental control, right this is a way that you can do it is is you make everybody very uncertain as to who who's going to get in trouble for what when yeah and a lot of people see, you know don't deal with that very well it causes a very stressful very anxiety ridden environment and people are not on their best behavior and they are not able to produce their best when they're in an environment like that but you know the thing about these destructive cults is they're not trying to be uh, glittering models of efficiency they're trying to control people. That's what it's all about. And so the more, you you know, you guys out there maybe find yourself in a work environment or a a social environment that acts like that, you know, you might want to seriously reconsider whether you want to stay in that environment or not because it's dangerous. And that's why. So there you go. Tom Velvic. I was wondering what happens to people who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to OT8 And then realize that all the gains slash abilities promised to them didn't happen. Do they blame themselves and they think they still need more auditing? Do they just pretend to have the abilities promised? Do they realize it's all been a scam and then either go psychotic or leave the church? That has to be a terrible blow to realize it's all been a lie. Hey, Tom, thanks for this question. And actually, you know, you kind of answered it yourself with all the questions you asked because it's all of the above. I can think of or have seen examples of all of these people blaming themselves and they need more auditing, people pretending. That was where I was going to go first because that tends to be with people who stick with it and stay in Scientology, they either pretend or more importantly, they even pretend to themselves and they just fake it, right? Fake it till you make it kind of thing and as OTAs, they're supposed to have made it But OT8 is only the first of the true OT levels and is not supposed to necessarily give you telekinesis and telepathy and all that stuff. Everybody's kind of unique and different. one of the ways they justify it in Scientology is, well, you know, people have differing amounts of theta endowment, right? There's big beans and maybe not so big beans, right? There's Tom Cruise and David Miscavige big beans and then there's your regular Joe Scientologist and maybe he's not as big of a being and maybe he's not endowed with as much theta as somebody like a Tom Cruise and so you know it's going to be a little bit more of a slow roll for you to regain all of your spiritual abilities and so you know you just kind of plod along and do your work and keep your head down and and say yes sir no sir and how high sir when you when you're told to um And yes, there are people who get through OT8 and have such a horrible experience. In fact, there have been a lot of them who have had such a horrible experience getting through OT8 that that all by itself, finally, you know, they just went, oh my God, I've gotten all the way to the top. I have just been abused and used and taken. They took all my money. And what do I have to show for it? Absolutely nothing or very little. And they become quite disaffected and they leave they leave Scientology and a lot of OTs have done that others spin inwards right their attention socks in they introvert they wonder what's wrong with them they start you know thinking very very weird things and a couple people have even kind of gone off the edge now was that because of OT8 impossible to say okay and let's be clear about that um, people commit you know, suicide, and they do things, and they have episodes for all kinds of reasons, but I will say maybe OT8 all by itself or the Scientology experience as a whole drove them to that, or maybe it was only part of what drove them to that. It's really hard to say. That is truly a case-by-case basis, and you really got to know all the details before you can, um, you know, sort of slam judgment down on that. However, I will say, that all having been said, Scientology is nothing but a negative influence on them when it comes to that. There is not really any any positivity to be gotten from Scientology. It is a coercively controlling environment, which is designed to leech your money and your time and your energy and suck you dry and use you and use you and use you until you won't be used anymore. And you get yourself out of there. That's, that's how it is in Scientology. So, you know, people are going to have all kinds of reactions to that once they realize that's what has been going on. And sometimes those reactions can be violent or can be uh, self-destructive. So that's what I can say about that. Michael Yoder. Last week, you, cl- you clarified what rudiments are in an auditing session. But what is meant by the term out-rudiments? And also, what are middle rudiments? Also, Hubbard mentioned a theta bop is something an e-meter does. Is that just him being silly, or is there such a thing? Okay, Michael, yeah. So we did talk about rudiments last week in terms of these uh, questions that are checked to make sure the session is ready to go and the person is interested in their own case, interested in themselves and their history, and they're willing to talk to the auditor. That's the whole point of the rudiments is to get the person in session where their attention is not on their kids or their spouse or their job or their problems. It's on the session itself and only on the session itself. That's the purpose of the rudiments. Now, middle rudiments, or sorry, so out rudiments is the term that's used to describe when somebody's rudiments are not in. They're out. They're out rudes, right? They have an ARC break. They have a present time problem. They have a withhold. They have a missed withhold. They have uh, an invalidation, an evaluation something like this. There's various uh, rudiments that you can check. Um, so uh, so that's out rudiments, right? You're in rudiments or you're out rudiments. And as far as middle rudiments, those are only, that's the, the rudiments are something that are done in, according to the model of how auditing is done, rudiments are the first thing you check and you deal with and you get it out of the way. And then you get on with the main body of the session. During the course of the session, it's possible that a person's rudiments might go out again. They might get attention on their mom or their spouse or some problem they're having or the bill that's due tomorrow or something like that. And if they start kind of demonstrating that, then you're going to do the rudiments again in the middle of the session. And that's why they're called mid rudiments or middle rudiments. Not used a whole lot anymore because most of the time it's assumed that the process you're running is the thing that's causing the person to go all haywire and you just get the person through the process. But there are certain processes, certain certain techniques that are used where middle rudiments might be appropriate. Uh, we don't have to go into all that right now. It's just rudiments in the middle of the session. That's what that is. That's what that's about. And finally, you asked about a theta bop. And um, this is a little bit of a fun one. So I pulled out my technical dictionary, and I'm looking it up right now. A small or wide steady dance of the needle. This is on an e-meter. Over a spread of one-eighth of an inch, say... Right, depending on the sensitivity setting of the e meter, it can be half an inch. The needle goes up and down perhaps five or ten times a second. Right? That's a theta bop. And it's always the same distance, back and forth, like a slow tuning fork. It's a constant distance and a constant speed. A theta bop means death leaving. Don't want to be here. It's caused by a yo yo of the pre clear as a Phaeton vibrating out and into the body or position in the body. It's as if the needle is jumping between two peaks across a narrow valley. Rise, stick, fall, stick, rise, stick, fall, stick, rise, stick, fall, stick, rise, stick, fall, stick. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Okay? And he does say later, it is not. Um, it's. It doesn't really matter how wide it is. He says it could be a whole dial wide. I never saw a whole dial wide theta bop. Most theta bops do it repetitively, you know. But it could be one dip, one recovery. It could be as short as that. Boink, right? Theta bop, right? As long as it goes back and forth a couple of times, you got yourself a theta bop. And yes, that is an actual uh, thing that can happen on an e-meter, but his reasoning for why that happens that way, total nonsense. It has nothing to do with a spirit bopping in and out of your body. And the thing about a theta bop is I've only ever witnessed, and I used an e-meter for decades, and I only witnessed an actual theta bop happening in an actual real environment that wasn't a training environment or a, or a, a sort of a simulated environment um, Never. <laughs> I never saw one. I saw a lot of different stuff on an e-meter, but, you know, but this, this back and forth, back and forth thing. Now, I'm not saying nobody else has ever seen one. I'm just saying I use an e-meter a lot, and I never saw one. And they're not even really looked for very much because they're really not, they're not diagnostic. They're not useful. It's just kind of a, oh, that's interesting. So what, you know, there's a lot of different reactions on an e-meter and a theta pop is one of them, uh, according to L. Ron Hubbard, but it's really more as I, as the way I see it now, what I'm trying to infer here and where, and I'll just say it out clearly is it's, you know, there's a lot of confirmation bias going on with e-meters. You see what you want to see, not what's really there, right? Just because the needle, go, you know, goes this direction. Oh, it's a fall. It's a reaction. No, it's a needle going in this direction right just cuz it happens to be timed exactly with the end of your statement doesn't mean anything it just means you timed it right if you know the same reaction could have happened in the middle of the statement doesn't mean anything but it just so happens you got that timing right so we're going to take it right i was talking about this last week in the q and a so this stuff is really just a matter of random reactions on this dial And there's only so many things that it's going to do. And Hubbard assigns all kinds of importances to these random, you know, drifts and body motions and muscular twitches and sweat responses. And, you know, these kinds of things get an awful lot more importance in Scientology than they deserve. And Hubbard's, and again, it's all in the interpretation If you realize holding the cans and sitting in an auditing session that most of what's going on is just your body's responses and reactions to things, and it has nothing to do with your spiritual self, then you're really kind of more accurately assessing what's really going on there. But Scientologists are trained and trained and drilled, and they spend hours and hours learning how to read an e-meter. You know, it's really not any different than reading tea leaves or reading, you know, seagull guts or reading the stars. You can see whatever you want to see in it. That's kind of my point, right? Uh, So there you go. Steve Wood, I'm interested to know if whilst you were in, did it ever cross your mind as to why so many people were against Scientology? How did you rectify this within your own mind as to why people thought about Scientology in such a negative way? Also, did it ever cross your mind as to why people had to escape? How'd you come to terms with that? After all, nobody had to escape from Christianity, Catholicism, or Judaism, as far as I know. Oh, Steve. Okay, so first off, um, I never—I'll Just I'll, I'll go, I'll go second question first. Uh, nobody in Scientology thinks that people who leave are escaping, and that term— would just be nonsensical to a Scientologist or a Sea Org member. We didn't think that way. If somebody took off or blew, as we would call it, they t- they they blow right. They go a wall. We put full responsibility for them as Scientologists on them. It's their fault because of their overts, their crimes, their sins. Hubbard is crystal clear about this. He makes he doesn't mince words at all. If somebody leaves or takes off, it's because of their Overts, period, end of story. Nothing else. There's nothing else to discuss about it. It's that black and white. So, as a Scientologist, if you're a true believer, you buy that. You absolutely believe that people take off and leave, they don't escape. We didn't think about Scientology as something to escape from. We thought about it as the greatest thing and the best movement in the world and the only thing that was salvaging this sector of the universe. So we thought people who said they escaped were just talking out of their ass. You know, they were just committing overts and then justifying it. Oh, you had to escape from yourself. You know, that's how we thought about it. I I hope that's clear now. um, And so similarly, right, did it ever cross my mind as to why people were against Scientology? Sure, absolutely. I thought about it a lot used to bother me all the time, right? Why, why does the world think so poorly of us? But Hubbard has this down too. He's, he's already covered this. There are overts. There are criminals out there, right? The people who are really vocal against Scientology are only being that way because of their own overts again. It all comes back to overts, right? Sins, bad deeds. They're criminals, That's why they don't like Scientology. And if you're not, and if you're just a regular Joe Blow and you're not a criminal, you've been either influenced by one of those criminals, one of those SPs, right? Unduly influenced by them. Or um, you're just grossly ignorant. You just have no clue what you're talking about. You're just being a smartass. You're just being a, you know, a shill for the Sykes. You're just being a shill for the SPs. You don't really know what the hell you're saying. And I can disregard everything you have to say because I don't have to pay attention to anything you say. I'm the one who's the Scientologist in this picture. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to Scientology. You don't. You ain't got nothing to tell me about this topic. See, that's the attitude. And it's a very strong one. That's the whole thing about us versus them. Is It's a versus. You actually have to be a little antagonistic or hostile to them because they ain't us. And if they want to come on board and be part of us, open arms, baby. Come on. We'll accept you. We'll we'll train you. We'll teach you. We'll rehabilitate you spiritually, and we will save you. The doors are wide open, but you're the one who has to walk in the door. And if you're going to just sit out there and catcall, you're just part of the problem. You are not part of the solution. You're not solving anything out there. We're the ones in here who are solving things. That's the attitude in the Church of Scientology and frankly in every destructive cult out there. That's what it means to be in an extremist headspace is you're always right and they are always wrong. Always. It's the simplest path of least resistance to thinking. Because it removes thinking from the equation. And this is why thought-stopping cliches, the phrasing, the little phrases and mantras we would tell ourselves are so important to all of this. They're just an SP. That's it. I don't have to think anymore about them or anything they're telling me. They're just an SP. It's like a shield. It's like a mental shield. It's a thought-stopping cliche. It stops my thinking. You're trying to tell me facts and reasons and evidence and rational stuff about Scientology and why it's wrong or bad. I'm not hearing a word of it because you're an SP, right? Shuts down the thinking. Or you're PTS. Oh, you're just PTS. You just got some SP who's, who's in your ear and you're listening to them because of your own overts. I don't got to listen to you. You're just PTS. You see these labels, these thought-stopping cliches, they're powerful stuff because they shut down a person's receipt of criticism and they don't have to listen to a word of it. So that's kind of what's behind that. And I very much subscribe to those thought-stopping cliches. I was absolutely in a prison of belief when I was in Scientology. We all were. And that's what it means to be in a prison of belief is you can't think your way out of it. And you won't let yourself think your way out of it. That's rough, man. That is the toughest prison there is. There are no iron bars anywhere in the world that are as strong as your own mind in containing and controlling and stopping yourself from thinking. Powerful stuff. That's what we talk about when we talk about thought reform, thought control, right? That's what it's all about. And once you've convinced somebody of this, once they've, once they've accepted that it's my way, our way, or the highway, and there's no other way to be, and there's no other way to do, there's no other way to, to experience the world, you know, they're gone. They're lost. And that's, that's, a, that's a rough situation. That's tough, tough to deal with. But, you know, it kind of is what it is. That's, that's why we call these things destructive cults. They're destructive not only of material possessions, money, and time, they're destructive to your thinking, the whole thinking process, and they and it and it makes it impossible to critically think about it. So, um, now I'm going to tell you one other thing. I'll give you one more thing here that Scientologists will tell themselves about this because Hubbard uh, tells them to. Hubbard also implies that because of psychiatry and the long term. History of psychiatry on in the past, going back millions and millions of years. Hubbard said psychiatrists have been around for a long time, under different names, but always doing the same stuff. They have implanted you to believe that Scientology or anything like it is bad and wrong and should be stayed away from. Oh, no, no, you can't trust anybody who's trying to help you. Help is betrayal, see? Every time somebody helps you, they actually betray you. And this is a deep, deep thought that some people actually kind of feel because they have been betrayed in real life. And so people can, uh, who come into Scientology who have a history of being screwed over by people hear Hubbard say this and they go, oh, yeah, that makes all kinds of sense. Help is betrayal. That's what's going to happen. And Hubbard said that's actually implanted in you. And it's implanted in those people out there. And so when they're negative about Scientology, when they're telling uh, you bad things about Scientology, they're talking out of their implants. So it's either overts, right, sins, or it's implants. It's up to the Scientologists to decide for themselves which one it is for the person But that's another reason Hubbard gives for people to think that uh, that's why people are critical of Scientology. So anyway, hope that was enlightening for you, Steve. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry, I was wondering if there was an extinction-level event on Earth, for example, a meteor or a nuclear holocaust, etc., what would happen to all the thetans? There would be no bodies to occupy. Also, isn't there a thing about the soul catchers where we can't leave our solar system? From my understanding, the lore is you have to reach OT15 to be able to transcend everything, so if you only made it to OT8, would you be out of luck anyway? All right, Jonathan, thank you for this question. Very quickly, if you make it up through OT7 and you're done and you get to onto OT8, then you're pretty much secured in a position where you're going to be okay. That's the thought, right? Now, if there were an extinction level event and Earth was, you know, flattened just like when Xenu came around 75 million years ago, what would everybody do? Well, they'd do the same damn thing they did 75 million years ago from the Scientology perspective. They'd be stuck here and They would just kind of roam around. Maybe they'd be a rock for a while. Maybe they'd go be an amoeba or something. There's all kinds of life all over the world that a thetan can occupy or control. Hubbard talked about thetans taking control of a forest and kind of owning the whole thing, or cats, or dogs, or animals. I mean, there's no reason a thetan can't occupy any kind of living being. Uh, and if there were millions of years of evolution needed because we wiped ourselves out again and intelligent life wasn't going to rear its head until something evolved up again, you know, Thetans have nothing but time. They don't die ever. <laughs> and the spiritual existence is, is not going to ever stop. And so they'd be stuck here until bodies came along for them to occupy again. Again, just like happened 75 million years ago after the Xenu thing. So that's the answer to the question. Hope it it makes sense. Alex C. When David Miscavige came around during your time in the Sea Org, did he do all the talking or were those around him briefing him? What was his overall tone when he spoke? Was he dismissive or did he put on a positive motivational valence? Whenever I saw David Miscavige, he was doing briefings, and he was definitely the one in charge, and he was definitely the one doing all the talking. I never was in a situation where David Miscavige was being briefed on something. I was not at that level where I was in those rooms for those meetings, but obviously they happen all the time, but I was just never privy to those. Um, Miscavige, in terms of his overall tone when he spoke, was relatively hostile. He came across as rough and intense Right, he wanted you to get this, and God damn it, you better. Right, those were the kind of briefings I was involved in, and um, and it was you know yes sir, no sir, how high sir. It was very much like all you know, all ears, all eyes, mouth shut, kind of approach. We were terrified of that man. Um, I didn't call it terror, terror at the time. I called it respect because <laughs> I had a very twisted idea of what respect was when I was in Scientology, especially in the Sea Org. Um, so yeah, he was more dismissive than he was positive motivational. But you know, there were also, of course, times I was in the room during events where he was doing the briefings to all the public, and at those times he was his motivational self that you see in the DVDs or the event videos. So, um, so those are the two sides of Miscavige I saw uh, in my experience with him. Martin, how does dating work in the church orgs? Any rules for staff and the public? Does the church have to approve the relationship? Dating works in the church pretty much the same way it works everywhere else, except for, of course, limitations (laughs) on time and money, uh, especially in the Sea Org. You're not going to go out for dinners and stuff like that. You're going to have to do everything pretty much on the base or around, you know, days off or something. Uh, That's why, you know, dating tends to be an after post activity where you're just kind of hanging out in the stairwell, getting to know each other and talking into the wee hours of the evening. At least that was my experience with my former wife. Um, there are rules in terms of auditors cannot start relationships with their pre clears and course room supervisors or teachers cannot start relationships with their students. That is inviolate that, that nobody breaks those rules. If you do, you get in an awful lot of trouble. Um, so those are, those are pretty firmly held. Otherwise, not a lot, not really much in the way of, of rules about that. In the C organization, of course, There's no sex pre-marriage, so uh, no heavy petting, no like getting into it and down and dirty or anything. And lots and lots of people in the Sea Org have broken those rules and gotten into all kinds of trouble for it. But those are the rules. All right. That is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me. Gabber on here. I hope these answers were informative, educational, and entertaining, as always. And I hope you'll keep in mind what I said at the beginning of the show about supporting the channel. Uh, Your help would very, very much be appreciated. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.